Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What's behind the cattle mutilation mystery? Is it aliens, the government, vegetarian extremists? After 50 years of cases, are we closer to or further from an explanation? Hey hey there, hello, and hey there, and welcome to the uh, 565th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. And if I can get my words out, I'm Ben, and those uh, deep questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. And this evening, we welcome a new guest on a subject we have uh, never really devoted time in a whole show to uh, talking about in all of our years on the airwaves. And uh, we welcome your calls this evening. Numbers numbers to call 800-449-1240 or from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada. Uh, That is uh, the number to call. Or locally, it is 401-766-1240. And we will be monitoring emails at paul at behindtheparanormal.com if you so desire. So, Christopher O'Brien is an investigative journalist and painstaking researcher who has come to many of the same conclusions we have about the nature of the paranormal. Since 1992, Chris has investigated and or documented thousands of unexplained events, especially in the American Southwest. His books include Enter the Valley, UFOs, Religious Miracles, Cattle Mutilation, and Other Unexplained Phenomena in the San Luis Valley, Stalking the Tricksters, Secrets of the Mysterious Valley, and his latest, the subject of our discussion this evening, Stalking the Herd, Unraveling the Cattle Mutilation Mystery. Chris is co-host of the very high-quality high show, The Paracast, heard on Sundays on Internet Radio, and Chris will tell us about that later. Chris, you're all over the Internet. Is there a particular site you'd like to promote this evening? Well, uh, you know, OurStrangePlanet.com is my own personal website, and then, of course, TheParacast.com is the site for the radio show. Good enough. So, Chris, uh, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Yeah, well, thanks a lot for having me. It's good to be virtually back in my old stomping grounds. Well, hey, what do you know? We're virtual stomping grounds or whatever. So, Chris, uh, Stalking the Herd uh, begins with a really interesting history of the relationship between people and cattle. So can you set the uh, background here by telling us about that history? Yeah, well, um, as... Well, probably most of your listeners know there's a lot of cows on the planet, and uh, 1.37 billion of them. And uh, interestingly enough, the first domesticated herd of, of aurochs, or the progenitor, uh, you know, now extinct bovine, the progenitor species that most, if not all, present-day cattle are derived from, um, we're part of a herd of about 80 animals, they think, in northern Iran, about 10,500 B.C., and that's where we see the first successful containment and domestication of livestock. And during the first 1,000, 2,000 years, uh, well, actually even more, up to about 7,000 B.C., we see uh, cattle being revered uh, as very sacred animals, uh, the bull and the cow were both uh, revered uh, on equal uh, terms, pretty much. And we see in some of the earliest uh, urban centers around Catalhuyuk and Ur, in some of the upper Mesopotamian um, cities and city-states, we see, you know, the slow domestication of livestock uh, taking taking hold. And cattle have now, you know, spread from those 80 animals in northern Iran, 10,500 B.C., to uh, all over the planet with uh, almost uh, one in a third billion cattle. So uh, it's it's a long, uh, you know, 
sacred relationship, if you will, that goes back, as, as I mentioned, thousands of years. Some of the earliest known depictions of animals uh, that have been found at uh, some of the great uh, sites like Lascaux and Chave and the Altamira Cave feature bovines uh, in kind of a reverential way. I think, uh, you know, back then we had we had a real important, I think, symbiotic relationship with cattle. And uh, now that relationship, of course, has uh, morphed into something quite unceremonious uh, as we ritually, in a me- mechanical way, slaughter, you know, thousands of head of livestock every hour. Well, I'll never look at the denizens of Wright's Dairy Farm again. Uh, you're in Arizona, but around here, that, that, that's a famous farm store and bakery, which I suppose I shouldn't be advertising, but anyway. Uh, so, okay, that's... Um, you really set the tone there, and uh, is there any more anything more to that you'd like to say before we go on to our next questions? Well, yeah, I think I think it's interesting to look at the at the progression of uh, religious belief and spiritual belief around bovines um, as as it you know came forward in history. We see uh, worship of the cow kind of heading east into India, where today uh, cows are still revered by uh, you know by I don't know how many. <laughs> three-quarters of a billion Hindis. Uh, and at the same time, we saw kind of a, a shift to the West, uh, worshiping the bull, which, of course, was the um, the most sacred animal for the Minoan civilization. It morphed into Greece, into Rome. And vestiges of that of that kind of belief system can be found uh, today in, in bullfighting in Spain, uh, some of the... Uh, uh, African uh, countries, for instance, and uh, in, in cultures, the, the Noor and the Dinka and the Maasai, they still worship cattle today. Um, so, you know, we've seen this ancient relationship, you know, still percolating uh, in certain cultures. But in the West, of course, cattle have become, um, you know, just <laughs> meat on styrofoam wrapped in plastic, uh, basically in your supermarket. And most people don't think twice about going out and buying some chopped meat or a steak and throwing it on the barbecue, and they don't really have a sense of where that meat came from, what kind of relationship you know we have had for thousands and thousands of years with cattle. And one of the things that I really wanted to do with uh, my book, Stocking the Herd, was put the cattle mutilation context into some sort of cultural context so that we can, I think, get a, a more well-rounded playing field to, uh, you know, to really observe this whole mystery and, and try to uh, make heads or tails of it and get to the bottom of it. I like the heads or tails thing. Huh. I, see, I see what you did there. So what is the earliest uh, mutilation case that you know of? Well, in terms of real, real documentation that has an evidence chain, the earliest outbreak of livestock mutilations that I've been able to ascertain uh, without much question, really, uh, it's from 1606, uh, where we see in the court records of James I of England uh, a pretty interesting quote uh, in there about hundreds and hundreds of sheep being mutilated in and around the shires of London. And uh, that's probably the earliest documentation that I've been able to uncover and, and stand behind. But there, there you know, may be other examples of outbreaks of livestock mutilations. Uh, one uh, particular avenue I'm going down is looking into the middle uh, kingdom of Egypt. There were evidently an outbreak of, of some unusual livestock deaths, uh, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred years before, uh, you know, the cases I just mentioned in England. So 
there may be other examples of documentation that allege to talk about these types of deaths, but I did uncover a very interesting image, um, part of the very um, obscure but uh, I think very noteworthy frescoes, uh, they're called the Sicily Frescoes in Algeria, that show about 20 feet worth of a a beautiful uh, painting on the wall uh, of cattle in a herd, and at the very front of the herd is what appears to be a mutilation taking place by humans in, in a very bizarre ghostly like figure at the head of the uh, the dead animal that's being that's being uh, eviscerated hmm. uh, so in terms of pure documentation yeah that 1606 uh, entry into the court records of James the first is the earliest hmm. uh, I was going to Ben has another question here but I was going to ask you uh, how, how does uh, the relationship with cattle between cattle and humans as that you've described, uh, to you, how does how does that lead into the mutilation phenomenon, or, or or put that in some sort of context? If you know what I mean. Well, I think it's all you know is, is basically obviously revolving around biology. Uh, number one, and because we have been consuming uh, beef for so many you know a thousand generations or more, it it kind of looks like we sort of that old axiom: you are what you eat. We've we, we are almost a virtual genetic match to, to cattle in terms of our hemoglobin. If you're a universal donor, for instance, you can survive uh, a transfusion of pure cattle hemoglobin. Um, just to give you an example of how closely related we are genetically I never uh, knew in terms that. of our blood. Yeah, we're, we're a 99.9 to 9 places uh, genetic match uh, in terms of our hemoglobin and cattle hemoglobin. So that's, of course, that fact has given rise to the whole idea that ETs are coming down and, you know, draining animals of blood and harvesting their parts for genetic experimentation, hybridizing maybe their dying race. I've, I've heard some pretty uh, pretty interesting theories, but again, all those theories are just that. They're just theories. We don't really have any evidence to back any of those um, kind of sci-fi explanations up. We, yeah. you know, we, we really don't. Well, we'll give into that. Uh, ben has another question. I do indeed. So, Considering that, so with all the all the uh, ETs and stuff aside, how has the phenomena um, evolved since 1606? Obviously, things have probably changed, but what what exactly has changed? Well, first of all, let's define what a you know a cattle mutilation or a li- unexplained livestock death is. It's, it's an animal that's found slain uh, with no apparent cause of death. It's found. Uh, generally in a, a pasture-like area, um, missing various soft tissue organs, whether it's the reproductive tract has been pulled out like a plug, the genitalia on male animals has been excised in what appears to be a professional, sort of almost a clinical manner. Um, oftentimes the tongue is taken from deep within the esophagus. Um, the jawbone uh, has been laid open and the, and the flesh expertly taken out, uh, taken off the jawbone. Sometimes an eye is gone, sometimes an ear, sometimes a patch of, of hide is gone. Um, there's no track around the animal to suggest, you know, who did this or any sort of crime scene type clues to give us a, a leg up on who the perpetrators are. Um, there have been a number of cases over the years that uh, have strange lights seen uh, the night of the mutilation. Um, there's been hundreds and hundreds of helicopter sightings. Uh, since the 70s around these mutilation sites, uh, especially here in North America. This tends to be a worldwide phenomenon. Anywhere there's a high 
per capita consumption of red meat, you tend to find these cases, uh, which are pretty much exclusively uh, Christian countries. Um, they've been reported all through South America, Central America, Mexico, North uh, America, Puerto Rico, even there was an outbreak in the late 70s in the Canary Islands, Australia. We already mentioned, uh, you know, England and the British Isles. Uh, it's it's very pervasive it, because it's kind of horrific and, and sort of strange uh, to most people, unless a lot of cases are reported in, in, you know, a pretty short time period. You don't get much media coverage of these cases. They're still going on. We had seven cases in southern uh, Colorado, for instance, here um, this past, uh, at the end of the summer period. So, you know, these cases are still taking place. And, again, to recap, they generally appear in Christian countries and appear where, you know, red meat is a, you know, is a viable and popular protein source. Hmm. On the issue of, of consistency among the cases, is uh, are the characteristics consistent um, to what we might see in a case, say in in uh, the Southwest, as you as you were describing, Colorado, that was the, the the surgical removal of the same parts, this sort of thing. Yeah, basically, what's gone are the fastest regenerating soft tissues, uh, you know, that the animal possesses. Hmm. Um, these are also the organs that humans, coincidentally, tend to develop cancer in uh, the most. Um, reproductive tracts, the tongue, um, you know the genitalia, um, these are, you know, organs that are attacked by cancers uh, quite often. And there is a consistency with the type of body parts that are missing. In England, of course, there are no real predators there uh, besides humans. Um, and very, the type of scavengers that are there are, are much more predictable than they are, let's say, out here in the West. So when people say this is all just uh, predation and, un, you know, Unidentified or misidentified scavenger action. If you go to a place like, you know, some of the uh, you know pastures around Wales and, and mid the Midlands of England, uh, you don't have those types of animals uh, doing the type of scavenging that you see here in the West. Out in the West, you can blame it on vultures. You can blame it on ravens, magpies, coyotes, uh, foxes. Sometimes um, down in South America, they. <laughs> They had a huge wave that went from 2002 all the way through 2006, and it kind of petered along, you know, burbled along under the surface ever since then. But at one point, the debunkers were saying a the red-muzzled mouse uh, was responsible for mutilating thousands of head of livestock down in South America. And, you know, I, I defy you to show me the, the, the mighty mouse that's going to be able to tackle yeah, right. a you know, thousand-pound animal. Well, exactly. I'm thinking back to 1989, Chris, when uh, I was a magazine sent me to England, uh, specifically to Devon and uh, Northern Devon, Exmoor, uh, which is a national park yeah. area, lots of moors and things, uh, because of the uh, so-called Beast of Exmoor. Okay, and right. uh, th there, there apparently are at least some predators in England. Uh, I, I can just see the old colonel from the Raj or something, you know, coming back. After Britain left India and bringing uh, exotic pets like black panthers or something, and then Parliament in the 70s passed the Animals Act, and you couldn't have any weird pets anymore, so they probably just let the thing go, right. and you know the whole thing. Um, I well, talked to farmer after farmer but after farmer. Explain, hmm? Yeah, I can't explain all the cases that are being reported. There have been cases, dozens of animals in a single night. 
I saw I saw it myself. It was some of it, you know. And uh, now yeah. whether it was now, now there's a certain characteristic that that a cat would have as opposed to a dog. At least, oh, yeah. it, and that's the, the sort of licks out the. Well, any any animal, any any yeah, four-legged yeah. varmint. Uh, but this, uh, but there, were, there was no no rumor of aliens or anything like that. But I did see several very isolated carcasses that, that had uh, that looked. I, I would say surgically removed. You know, with my untrained, I'm not a doctor. Surgically removed uh, flesh from the jaw, things of this kind. And perhaps it was decomposition, but I don't. know. These were new kills. Yeah. So I yeah, what I was looking at, I don't the know. The animals have dead for, been dead for just uh, literally minutes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was one one case at the Skinwalker Ranch, uh, the Sherman Ranch up in uh-huh. Utah, where yeah. the rancher and his wife were actually in the same field in broad daylight where a mutilation occurred within minutes of uh, seeing the, the little calf alive. They returned, you know, three, 400 yards back in their truck, and the calf was all laid out mutilated, and they never saw or heard a thing. So there, there is a real high strange element to some cases, I think, that lie at the core of this phenomenon, but that sort of high, strange explanation, I, or scenario, rather, is, I think is, is more the exception than the rule. Most of these cases, um, you can't really, you don't have that that real obvious sort of knee-jerk, high-strange uh, characteristic or evidence that would suggest something high-strange or paranormal, even. So... It's a complicated mystery, no question about it. Um, for every theory that you come up with, I could take the opposite side of that argument and win every debate because sure. there's yeah. just enough data to support every theory, but there's a mountain of data to refute every one. So they all seem to work on one level, but you can't use a single, you know, one-size-fits-all blanket explanation to explain all these cases. There, there appears to be multiple causal elements at work, and, and they probably represent overlapping agendas. Hmm. All right, well, we'll get into that in a minute, but how do you personally, or how, how would a good investigator go about uh, uh, investigating one of these, one of these, uh, these kills? In other words, how do you determine whether it's... Uh, well, the first, the first thing you do is you look for cut hair follicles, because... It doesn't matter what type of predator it is, or, or scavenger, insects, birds, uh, coyotes, foxes, you know, what have you. They're not going to be able to cut hair follicles in a straight line like with a, a scalpel or a sharp cutting implement. That's the first thing I look for is cut hair follicles. Okay. All right. Now, is it true that most ranchers have given up reporting mutes, as you call them in your book, mutilations is easier to spell, certainly. Uh, because it never gets them anywhere, they're reporting it, uh, and as a result, official reports have plummeted. Is that true? Yeah, I, I think that that's, that's a prevailing sort of scenario. Why publicize the fact that you've been victimized as a rancher and singled out from your, your ranch community? It, it's when a rancher feels victimized by some sort of human group. Let's say if they see military helicopters around their, their ranch uh, flying you know, in, in unusual uh, proximity to their herd, for instance, or um, military-type uh, helicopter operations just in and around an area where mutilations are occurring. It's generally when the ranch- ranchers get pissed off and think that they're being victimized that they'll come forward. What I found is is the higher strange the case, the less likely it is to be, re- be reported. Most of the time I, I have a sense that these animals are, are just drug off and buried or put onto a bone pile out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, yeah, it's funny you brought up Skinwalker Ranch, uh, which we don't seem to be able to get near that case for, for one reason or another. But I was the first investigator up there before the article. Hit. I know. That's why I wanted to ask you about it. Um, we have a yeah. similar case in Connecticut, and but there's been everything from Bigfoot to UFOs to Poltergeist and you name it, but no cattle mutilations that we're aware of yet. I just, I just thought I'd make Well, a point. if you find one, that'll be the first one for Connecticut. I don't have any Connecticut cases really? in my Wait, really? Or, or uh, Massachusetts cases. There's been only two in New Hampshire, none in Vermont, one in Maine. What about Rhode Island? Well, actually, two in Maine. R- Rhode Island? Say again? And any in Rhode Island? Uh, not to my knowledge. Okay, uh, just Maine. New England's been spared this for the most part. Okay. I wonder well, what that is. Well, I'm not going to complain uh, about it. Neither am I. I just, yeah. think, I just think that's interesting. So so where is it concentrated most in the U.S.? Well, it's, it depends on which, you know, which time period you're talking about. I think the, the uh, probably Weld County, um, El Paso County, the San Luis Valley counties, the five counties of the San Luis Valley, Rebo Rebus County around Dulce in New Mexico, very hard hit. Yeah, um, that's a famous name in the paranormal. Of uh, Rio de Janeiro in, in Brazil have been heavily impacted from 2002 to the present. South America, big cattle country. Big cattle country. Yeah. Some of the largest cattle herds in the world are there. Yeah, exactly. Florida, too. A lot of people don't realize that. You know? But in any case, we're yeah. going to talk about this after the break, spend the second half of the show on what might be going on here. Right. But um, okay, all right. But what? Just give us a taste now, if you would, before the break, of the the primary theories about what might actually be going on here. And well, the opinions. number one theory, <laughs> the number one theory is that it, there's there's no mystery here. It's all natural uh, scavenging action that appears, as you said, to the untrained eye, it appears abnormal. That is the overarching explanation that's been given uh, because. We really haven't had the quality investigations uh, out in the field um, since the 70s, which was during the height of, of the mutilation waves, especially here in the West. Um, the one investigator who's kept this thing, you know, fairly visible is Linda Moulton Howe, and, of course, mm. her, her pet theory, her knee-jerk theory is that aliens are coming down doing this for genetic hybridization programs and, and uh, gathering genetic material. But, again, we don't really have any evidence to back that up except for some anecdotal a handful of anecdotal reports and some mysterious lights seen in and around mutilation uh, sites from time to time. Okay. Well, yeah, well, Linda's Lynn, Lynn a, a mutual friend of ours, certainly, and uh, I wanted to get into, too, uh, later on, about mutilations of things other than cattle. Uh, Linda pointed out one time that they, uh, on the show that there are fish mutilations in cert- being reported in certain areas, because, because we had, uh, matter of fact, someone wrote into the show about it knowing she was going to be on and, uh, well, I'm not sure about fish, but dolphins. Yeah, there have been yeah. uh, quite a number of dolphin cases over the years. Well, this apparently was quite surging. It was in the midway. It was in, I believe, it was Minnesota. I, I can look it up for you. And there were obviously got a bear with a three foot paw is not going to be surgically extracting hearts and things like this and leaving the rest. <laughs> you know, so I yeah, mean, like yeah, so that, that kind of well, made, that would be a made first us for me. Yeah, Generally, it's warm blooded animals. I've never heard of a cold blooded animal being found in this condition. Okay, I'll, uh, well, let's see if I can dig up the information and send it to you. Uh, but in any yeah, case, I'd, um, I'd love to see that. Uh, we understand rather ominously uh, there are reports of people sometimes going through this or being uh, people, you know, human mutilation. Uh, extremely rare. Yeah, uh, and very Good. little documentation. <laughs> yeah, it's one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's one of the hardest uh, cases to investigate. Probably one of the most covered up 
types of crimes uh, within the law enforcement community. Of course, uh, the ex-publisher of UFO Magazine, Bob Ecker, who was an ex-law enforcement you know, officer from, from Pennsylvania, he, he spent you know, almost three years trying to get to the bottom of some cases that he was digging into and, and really uh, just hit a, a brick wall and was told, you know, don't, don't ask, basically. And I've, I've run into a brick wall on a couple of cases. I was uh, given some, um, you know, kind of some hints and allegations of cases that occurred, and I, I, I encountered the same sort of intransigence from, uh, from law enforcement. They just do not want to talk about it. Hmm. We do have uh, some fairly uh, interesting rumors, though, that have uh, surfaced over the years. Of course, the infamous uh, 1988 Deer Paranga Reservoir case, uh, in Brazil, has been touted as a mutilation. It is a highly unusual case, but uh, again, we don't have any sort of evidence to support any conclusion of how that poor guy was found in the uh, <clears throat> horrific condition uh, that he was found in. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, Chris, we're going to take our break. Uh, we're talking with Chris O'Brien, author of Stalking the Herd, Unraveling the Cattle Mutilation Mystery. Fascinating conversation. We're going to get really into the well, forget, pardon the pun, but the meat of this uh, in the second half hour. And as a matter of fact, we have a caller, but we're going to wait till after our break. We don't have a caller. Okay, very good. But anyway, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley and cattle mutilation-free Blackstone River Valley, as far as we know. We'll be right back, so stick with us. Hi, I'm Russ Gorman. When I first started doing my show, a program director with a mischievous sense of humor started a rumor that I did the show in the nude. Not true, but you'll get the naked truth and an astrological chart that I do for you. I uncover every aspect of your life, helping you to strip away your problems and give you insight to your future. If you're seeking the real skinny for this exciting year, call me for information on getting your individual chart or update done at 4013. Three three four zero four eight, and get your free lucky numbers for the entire year. Don't come home from a casino in a barrel. From the top to the bottom of every page will bear the facts about you and your future. Call me at four zero one three 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 four zero four eight for a real eye opener. I'm also available for speaking engagements for your club or groups, and for private parties. Russ, put your clothes back on. Well, on that note, here we are, back and behind the paranormal. And before we get back to our really interesting conversation with Chris O'Brien, I wanted to tell you about some of the charities Ben and I have adopted on the show, uh, mostly veterans charities, uh, certainly Builders Helping Heroes locally here in uh, northern Rhode Island, or uh, Rhode Island in general. Uh, we have a wonderful uh, organization that is uh, part of the Rhode Island Builders Association that does remodeling and new construction for veterans and their families uh, of, the, of uh, veterans since uh, 9-11 done a great job on that. Uh, also, uh, out in uh, Los Angeles, we have Youth Mentoring Connection. Tony Larry out there has done a fantastic job using uh, ancient indigenous wisdom, nothing occult, just good common sense from our remote ancestors, uh, to reach at-risk youth, doing a fantastic job out there. And, of course, up to the north, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, Mike Blaze in Ontario, has started a great organization to advocate for Canada's veterans, who do sometimes don't, aren't I don't, I don't get the impression they're, they're treated as well sometimes as our veterans are, and I think that's not fair because we have a lot of family in Canada, some of whom are veterans. But anyway, mm. uh, we're very pleased to promote that event as, uh, that, uh, as well, CanadianVeteransAdvocacy.org. So let's get back to our conversation. And we did have a caller with a question who didn't want to hold, but Ben will repeat the question. Oh, uh, yeah, so the, the caller called in and uh, 
was telling me that he'd heard reports and read read different articles saying um, that the blood of cattle has been uh, dra- drained from them. Some cattle showed up in trees, or some other really really crazy reports. So, what is your your um, your take on on all of that? Well, there there are some popular kind of misconceptions I think about about this particular mystery. Um, there have been uh, cases. You know, I personally investigated almost 200 cases over the years, and out of those, there were only a handful that were legitimately drained of fluids. Um, you know, but what people don't realize is as soon as, you know, animals die uh, and blood pressure subsides, all the, you know, the blood and, and liquid in the animals, uh, you know, gravity kind um, of pulls it down to the uh, to the body cavity. And so looking down from... You know, from the top, you're not really going to see that. And uh, if the animal's dead before it's disfigured, it's not going to, the wounds aren't going to bleed. So all you have to do is get a big, burly, uh, you know, guy to help you turn the thing over and whoosh, everything comes out of the body cavity, much to the surprise of the rancher who thought Bessie was drained of blood. So mm. that's one example of kind of a popular misconception. Another one is the cookie cutter incision or, or laser type cut. You, you see that term bantered about quite a bit. In reportage of, of this mystery, and and again, that's uh, pretty rare. Uh, we've only had, uh, to my knowledge, two cases that featured, you know, like pinking shear type incisions. Um, and there have been only, out of all my cases, I only had four that appeared to have been cut with some sort of lazing instrument. So I think these cases, you know, do occur. Animals have been found drained of blood all the way down to the capillary level. Uh, this is very rare. Uh, I think it's it's interesting that these cases should be singled out to represent the totality of the of the mystery when in fact that they are, are rather you know an aberration they're they're an exception to the rule hmm. there you go well, I, I, matter of fact why don't we give our numbers again i always forget to do that uh locally 401-766-1240 here in uh, northern rhode island or uh, from anywhere in the u.s and canada 800-766-1240 we're also monitoring emails at paul at it's behind. uh 800-449-1240 what did I say? You said something entirely different. Four four nine one two four zero. What? No. Oh, let's just let, let's yell numbers. Okay. Um, well, no. The the number the number is eight hundred four four nine one two four zero. It says it right that's there. That's what I said, son. That's not what you said. Well, it is now. All right. Uh, well, let's keep to the script here. Anyway, we're entertaining our guests. Uh, actually, we have uh, for those of you who uh, are happen to be listening online and looking at a computer, you have the jarring experience of actually seeing us as well as hearing us. So I'm going to hold up yep. a copy of Stalking the Herd here. Oh, okay, good. It's okay, got it there? Yep. Yeah. And uh, you'll be able to see that. If, it's a really good book. Yeah, yeah, as yeah. I told Chris, when you're done with it, you can use it as a doorstop. Not at it's all. Not you know, I, I, I'm a professional editor, and I told Chris that, that I don't give compliments easily, but it's even the, the preface and the forward are very well written. It's, it's, it's really a very good good book, and I really appreciate the historical background, because I'm a historian too, the historical background to the, the, the entire mystery. So uh, all those uh, compliments um, coming your way. Mark Twain said you can live six months on one good compliment, and I'm sure you can too, Chris. So... <laughs> Let, it's not going to pay my cable bill. Exactly. Yeah. Well, hey, but it's a start. You can compliment the cable guy, though. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah thank you. So let's get to the meat of this, as I say. What is go- Obviously, there's not one explanation for all these cases, but, but you know, in general, yeah. what, what is going on here? If you walk out and, as you say, Elsie is you know prostrate on the ground and all this stuff has been done, what's going on? 
Well, I think I think you have to look at it as as you know um, as an unfolding. Basically, you know, generally what happens is you'll have some legitimate cases that are high strange. They tend to be the presage type events. They tend to be the higher strange events. Then you seem to have kind of less proficient cases that occur in the general region of the case, almost uh, uh, like red herring cases, if you will. And And if this continues, then the media gets involved. And as soon as the media gets involved, every amateur, uh, you know, lookout is going to see a dead cow that maybe has been scavenged or, you know, appears abnormal, and they're going to report it as a mutilation. And then you you tend to have a snowballing effect. The, The more the media gets involved, the more... You know, mundane scavenger action is reported, and in quite a number of these cases, let's get real, they are mundane cases. I'm not a veterinary pathologist. Uh, That that particular, you know, type of of veterinarian scientist is the only one that can really ascertain the cause of death and subsequent disfigurement. And I'm an amateur, but having said that, I've, I've, you know, been taken to school by quite a number of of experts uh, over the years and worked with law enforcement, worked with scientific organizations to to get myself up to speed to be able to, be able to identify these cases um, in the hopes of marshalling uh, some sort of post-mortem testing of plant and uh, soil samples, for instance, around the animal, uh, forensic sample testing, that sort of thing. So I think what we're seeing here is, is the one theory that really, I think, has the most sticking power is some sort of environmental monitoring. Uh, appears to be going on. It's not specifically the animal or the rancher. It's where the animal and the ranch is in the environment. Um, we tend to see a clustering of, of hard-hit areas that are downwind and downstream of where we utilize uranium. For instance, downstream, downwind of uh, the Nevada test site, uh, missile silos, uh, weapon enrichment facilities, nuclear power plants, uranium mines. If you start going downriver, downstream, downwind of these areas, those are the areas that tend to be the hardest hit, at least here in North America. So we've seen kind of a, a morphing of this whole mystery over the decades. In the 70s, um, it, it appeared to be quite uh, pervasive. I think up to 30 states were reporting cases. Uh, I think at the most in one night, I think it's six states reported cases in the fall of 75. And then later in the fall of 79, it was quite a, a, a real hysterical outbreak of cases all through the mid to late 70s. But but these cases then seem to morph, and, and we see different areas being targeted uh, in the 80s, uh, some of the same areas, of course, being targeted, but, but it, it, it looked like it was, it was moving and concentrating in, in other areas. It's, I'm generalizing it, of course, but you know, we had cases in the 80s, for instance, the late 80s into the early 90s, where animals were being found uh, with clamp marks um, and bruising on their hindquarters around their uh, rear leg. We had, uh, I think, better forensic testing going on by this point. So um, we also had uh, cases where animals appeared to have been microwaved from the inside out. The animal would appear normal on the outside, uh, except for the, the incisional uh, areas that have been removed, uh, the soft tissue organs that have been removed. But when they did a necropsy on the animal, they found that it had been cooked, like uh, in a giant microwave oven. So there are some pretty interesting cases that that may suggest that some other agenda had been uh, put on top of some environmental monitoring agenda. Uh, Ted Oliphant, who was a police officer down in Fife, Alabama, got involved in a whole series of cases in the late 80s and early 90s in Alabama. And 
he ascertained that helicopter crews from Fort Campbell were coming down and conducting some sort of bioweapons, uh, uh, bio-warfare uh, test on, you know, herds around Fife, Alabama, for instance. Um, down in South America, I mean, we had a, a, a case where an entire 60,000-gallon stock tank was drained of all the water with no trace of the water uh, the next morning. And uh, a number of mutilated animals were found inside the, uh, <laughs> the drained tank. I don't think red muzzled mice are going to be able to pull that one off, but uh, probably not. You know, I, I think that there's um, there's kind of a, a flow, there's a, a curve. We see overlapping agendas, possibly uh, different perpetrators um, piggybacking their cases on other uh, other areas where cases are occurring to maybe throw investigators and law enforcement off off stride. So it's, that's a real tough, sort of complicated question. But what I can safely say, having, you know, spent 20 years looking into this uh, very distasteful subject, and my dad, um, I, the environmental monitoring uh, theory is the one that tends to have the most sticking power, at least in my estimation. Well, I'll tell you, Chris, uh, Ben will tell you that it's not easy to creep me out, but you just did. It's funny, when, when I don't know if you and I are the same vintage or not, but when I was a kid in the uh, late 50s, early 60s, we used to love to eat the snow. And here in New England, there's plenty of it, of course. And I remember one, one neighbor kid actually brought out chocolate syrup and we <laughs> make Sundays out of the snow. But then in school, this is the days when we were hiding under desks, even though there were three primary targets right, within five miles of the school. You know. And uh, they would say, don't eat the snow because right. it has been contaminated by nuclear tests in the southwest you know in those days they just you know blow anything up nuke, nuke anything for uh, test purposes for in the science. southwest and there was no control and uh, <laughs> I, I wondered li- later in life uh, doing paranormal research and, and encountering reports of cattle relations i wonder if maybe they're monitoring because you know th- that stuff had to go somewhere the fallout was it right, must be right. all over exactly. the southwest and right. that would destroy and the meat industry this is generally a, a east of the Continental Divide mystery. There have been cases in um, Idaho uh, on the western slopes of the Rockies, for instance. There have been cases in Oregon, Washington, um, California, Nevada. But if you look at the areas that are hardest hit, they tend to be east of the Rockies, at least in North America. And another little wrinkle in this whole thing is mad cow uh, This is a theory that I've been working on. Uh, you know, Ted Phillips and I in in the um, mid to late 90s, kind of came across the the same sort of uh, idea pretty much simultaneously that perhaps there's a connection with mad cow disease and perhaps what they're doing is they're sampling uh, animals in the food chain uh, to make sure that uh, we don't see a spread of mad cow disease. Mm. You know, and people say, Chris, well, why don't this, if it's the government, why don't they just grab their own herds and you know, or rent pasture and do this out of sight, out of mind. That's one question. I and uh, they they do. <laughs> okay. Which is something most people aren't aware of. Uh, the government does do that. And uh, we had a whistleblower, Brian Rimar, who was uh, an award-winning EPA scientist in the uh, late 90s who was involved in a, you know, they were raising livestock in, in the San Luis Valley downriver from a Superfund site around some of Bill Mine. And he found... Uh, you know, three, four times the amount of copper and heavy metals in these animals after he raised them for 120 days and brought them into the lab, mutilated them, tested their organs, and uh, was horrified to find that these animals were were just, you know, had all this heavy metal in them. And when he 
told his superiors uh, at the EPA about this. Uh, he said, we've got to warn these ranches who have, you know, ranches all around the area raise these these animals in. And uh, they said, no, you can't do that. And they, they fired him and they sued him to keep his mouth shut. And, and he went to Westwood Magazine in Denver and did a big expose. Hmm. Now, I find it very interesting that the seven cases, my most recent cases from that time period, were all around the Alamosa River where this, uh, this uh, pollution was occurring. So this, to me, was a really interesting sort of, you know, it, 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 it sort of indicated that whole idea of environmental monitoring as, as being a causal uh, motivation for some of these cases being conducted. And uh, another thing that's very interesting that it, we're looking at right now, I'm, I'm researching the second book on this topic that's going to be an analysis of all the data in the first book. The first book is 600 pages. I mean, it's, it's as, uh, about as exhaustive as you want to get. Um, it could have been a thousand pages, but I had to take all the analytical stuff out because I didn't have enough room. So we're going to do an entire book analyzing this. And one of the things that we're looking at is this idea that animals that have been exposed to above ground radiation um, tend to develop um, transmissible spongiform encephalopathies or mad cow disease, chronic wasting disease in elk and deer, Kutzfeld Jakob disease in humans. Um, it tends to kick off these misfolded proteins that, that cause these sim- symptoms of uh, TSE. And so uh, radiation may be a catalyst for outbreaks of, of these very uh, horrendous uh, encephalopathies, which are 100% fatal. I mean, it got so bad in England in nine, 1996 that they actually killed all 4.5 million head of livestock in the British Isles to eradicate that catastrophe. I remember that. Before they knew what caused it, and they, you know, they... They cremated all these animals, and they didn't realize that you can't really kill the prions. They can survive in the bone ash. So you have tons, you know, thousands and millions of pounds of bone ash that's riddled with uh, these misfolded proteins, uh, and it was all sold as fertilizer until they realized that, oh, my God, these prions, as they're called, these misfolded proteins, are surviving in the bone ash. You can render them inert with about 2,000 to 2,500 degree heat, and all these animals were being cremated at less than a thousand degrees. So there may be a real, you know, you know, super bombshell health issue going on here yeah. that um, has been covered up. And I'm not saying that that's the answer, the end all to be all, single one size fits all answer, not by any stretch. But it's definitely worthy of consideration and, and more research. Oh, it certainly seems to make sense as one of the answers, but... Uh, that seems more terrifying than aliens to me, honestly. <laughs> you're right. Yeah, yeah. Good thing you're a vegetarian, right? Yeah, yeah there we yeah. go. But let me ask this, Chris. Uh, it's Obviously, it sounds like it's very difficult to maintain control in a scientific sense of a, of a, of a, a, a sample or, or a site where this has occurred. Um, has anyone been able to maintain enough control to take soil samples and test to see if there are? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, um, what's the result the of that? National Institute for Discovery Sciences, NIDS, Robert Bigelow's uh, now defunct scientific organization, okay, yeah. did some very, very good work uh, with top-notch veterinary pathologists and diagnostic laboratories. Um, uh, John Andrews, uh, the doctor of veterinary medicine at Iowa um, State University, uh, conducted some very, very good uh, pathology exams of animals and post-mortem testing in, in the, um, you know, the university laboratories, uh, veterinary labs there. John Cornell, from, from uh, who was the head of veterinary medicine at Cornell, uh, John King, rather, uh, also did some testing. 
Um, there have been organizations that have conducted uh, studies. Uh, Dr. William C. Levengood, who's uh, best known for his crop circle uh, work, He's a, he was a biophysicist uh, in Pinelandia, the Pinelandia Bi- Biophysics Laboratory in, in Michigan. He did a uh, bovine excision site study. Um, it was a three-year study that I was a part of that uh, determined that there was some pretty unusual uh, findings of plants and soil directly around these animals uh, that kind of mimic and mirrored some true crop circle, um, anomalous crop circle uh, testing results, um, for instance. And UFO landing trace sites uh, have some of the similar sort of microwave-type um, evidence, uh, evidence of increased levels of magnetite in the soil, for instance. Um, also, we have these strange blowdown events that have occurred in the West and elsewhere where uh, huge swaths of the forest uh, on the Continental Divide have been whacked down. And, and one event, October 17, uh, 1996, uh, found the deer herd in the area developing just this, this, this upwelling of, of chronic wasting disease or mad deer disease that uh, has spread now all the way across the United States. It spread to uh, another 18 additional states, Wisconsin, Michigan, all through the Midwest. Um, uh, Maine has cases, Vermont, upstate New York, Virginia. Um, so this is a very, very complicated subject. It really takes a lot of research and digging to get to the bottom of, of you know, garbage in, garbage out, uh, you know, negating that sort of scenario. And obviously the cases that... Um, are analyzed by diagnostic labs and veterinary pathologists, the ones that we, you know, I would rather hang my hat on in terms of definitively saying this is what killed the animal and this is how it was subsequently disfigured. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we need to get all the ranching community uh, organizations on board, um, law enforcement organizations. um, You need to have recourse, places to send samples without getting charged an arm and a leg. Ranchers need to know that there's there's places that they can uh, send uh, properly obtained samples to to gain um, you know some insight into why the animal died and, and what disfigured it. There have been attempts uh, over the years with some pretty surprising results. Well, there you go. All right, now uh, now let me complicate the argument a little bit in the time we have left. Uh, actually, no. On the other hand, we're going to burn up this hour, so I want to give you a chance to talk about your books and your website, and just just go for it before we continue. <laughs> Well, um, you know, as, as you mentioned at the top of the show, I've, I've written five books. Um, I cut my teeth in the San Luis Valley, which is in south-central Colorado, as a uh, paranormal investigator. I investigated all sorts of crypto reports, um, you know, strange weather events, aberrant social behavior, uh, waves of UFO sightings, waves of cattle mutilation cases. Uh, and those resulted in three books that I've written, uh, The Mysterious Valley, Anna of the Valley, and Secrets of the Mysterious Valley. Uh, those, uh, that's where I really kind of got first put, you know, on the map in terms of people knowing that I was out there doing this work. Uh, since then, I've really become intrigued by the idea of a unified field theory to try to connect divergent uh, paranormal phenomena, look for a mechanism that connects these uh, these mysteries that we talk about on our shows. As do we. And yeah. um, that, that led me to my Stock into Tricksters book, which... Uh, looks at the trickster archetype as a mechanism that may tie many of these events together. Um, of course, my latest book, Stalking the Herd, is a result of 20 years of research, 200 cases, and uh, 18 months of, you know, getting a flat butt sitting in, in a chair, right? Hmm. Okay. And, t- and what about your show? 
Paracast? Well, it's theparacast.com. Um, we do have uh, now a, a subscription version of the show that's ad-free, but all our uh, shows with the ads intact are free. We have a huge archive. We've been around since 2008. Uh, we've been on the air six years now, seven years. Oh, right. I think Just almost like eight us. years now. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, about the same time. We both started around the same time. Yeah. And, and my, my, my website is OurStrangePlanet.com. It's a strange planet. It's our <laughs> strange planet. Indeed. Okay, very good. I guess I'll be a guest in a few weeks. Uh, we've been talking you will. about that. Yeah. You will. I'm looking forward to it, too. And I wanted to As ask, am I. are you related to Brian Eno? Oh, <laughs> nobody's ever asked us that on the air. I've gotten that since I'm I was not. a kid. Yeah, I've gotten that. Yeah, he is. Uh, he's a, it's an unusual name. He, we, it is. Uh, yeah, just one spelled backwards. We don't know him, but he supposedly is a cousin. He has. Uh, uh, there are other cousins of ours who do know him. So, I guess uh, the answer yeah, is yes. Yeah, he's my my. He's by far my favorite sound sculpture. You know, the Michelangelo sound sculpture. Uh, I've got a huge fan of his for forty years. Well, there you have it. Okay. We'll tell him when we see him, if we ever do. <laughs> then maybe he'll give me a Yeah, tell him to give me a record deal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right, me too. Ben wants used, used equipment, used basses and stuff for his own music. Uh, no. Yeah, thanks. yeah. Thanks. I'll take his old harp. Yeah. Yeah. So, in any case, uh, Chris, we've heard reports, and of course, reports, the veracity of reports is highly questionable in many cases, uh, from areas where mutilations have occurred about inaudible helicopters. Of course, that technology exists. Uh, UFOs yeah. that sound like helicopters, uh, or, or, or that turn into helicopters, or vice versa, men in black and all this business. What say you? Yeah, that's, again, very, very rare. One one case down in uh, outside of Trinidad, Colorado, uh, Lou Giroto, the sheriff there of, uh, of uh, Los Angeles County, he observed what he thought was a helicopter that turned into a UFO and zipped off. I have footage from my San Luis Valley camera surveillance project that showed the helicopter ending the frame, and when the light hits it from the proper angle from the sun low in the western sky, the helicopter turns into a silver orb that then shoots across the uh, screen uh, <laughs> because of the light. Yeah, refracting off the bubble of the of the choppers. Yeah. So, you know, appearances can be deceiving. Oh, yes. Uh, I, you know, it's Occam's razor. If it looks like a helicopter, sounds like a helicopter, uh, it, chances are that's what it is, I would think. And, you know, we've had a number of cases where the ranchers have gotten into gun battles with some of these helicopters seen around the herd. Uh, mm -hmm. In fact, one case in, uh, I believe it was Iowa in 72, uh, there was a huge... Uh, state of rustling, which is how the wave of the 70s started. They were rustling cattle first before they were found dead and mutilated in the fields uh, later on. And there was one case where the rancher was firing on a helicopter, and then another team on the ground in his, in his, on his property started firing at him. He was taking fire from the air and from the ground. Um, we've had uh, cases in, in Costilla County back in 75 where uh, the Deputies almost in ranches almost brought a helicopter down. It was smoking and making clanking noises as it limped off uh, uh, towards Fort Carson. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, this whole idea of, you know, masking technology, uh, some sort of cloaking devices or um, holographic uh, imaging, that sort of thing. I mean, sure, it sounds great on, on, on paper in theory, but we really don't have the number of cases to back that up for it. For every one of those type of cases, there's hundreds of helicopter sightings uh, that are of much more of the mundane fashion. So uh, let's get down to one, one question, and we're, we're burning up the hour. Has anybody actually seen or photographed, let alone photographed, one of these events taking place? 
No. Uh, we have some pretty good cases where animals have been seen on the ground with heli- a helicopter crew uh, next to it, for instance. Um, Linda Howe has a case where uh, a couple in, in Missouri witnessed uh, aliens outside of a craft, uh, levitating a cow up into the craft. Uh, but, again, these are very rare. Um, they're standalone cases that you can't, you can't use that particular scenario to explain all the cases. Uh, most of these cases occur on ranches that no longer exist. Uh, the 70s cases, for instance, all occurred on smaller ranching operations. And now all these ranches are out of business, and in their stead are these huge, you know, factory farms, uh, giant rendering facilities, and, and, and huge pens where tens of thousands of cattle are herded together, you know, and they pump 80% of the antibiotics that we use in this country go to, uh, you know, ward off disease in cattle herds uh, and feedlots. And I think 60% of the growth hormones used in this country uh, in total uh, go into cattle. Oh, so, you know, there's some serious health and, and environmental issues that are, that are uh, involved in this whole cattle question. Yeah, and, indeed. Uh, I get into all that in the book, and I, I think it's something that's been overlooked. You know, the large ranching operations trying to drive smaller ranches out of business. That's another uh, possible uh, culpable party that's been involved in at least some cases. Well, I'll tell you, Chris, we're out of time, but I think we're going to do this again. This is is a deep well. Mm. But thank you for a great show. We'll be talking to you. Yeah, yeah, thanks for having me. and look forward to seeing you online. Great. Okay. Very good, Chris. All right, Chris O'Brien, everybody. The book is Stalking the Herd, Unraveling the Cattle Mutilation Mystery. Very well written, very good stuff. Okay, now, um, we launched this show, here on Time for Announcements here, we launched this show on a Phoenix-based radio network in 2008 when Ben was 16 years old. Uh, we often hear from people all over the country who said they have heard, if not watched, Ben grow up on the show, and I, I'm rather touched by that. Well, the lad reached a milestone on Friday when, while doing his final on-air shift at a popular Boston FM station, he proposed to his high school sweetheart. Ben, would you care to tell us about how that went? Well, she said yes. That that's a plus. Yes, it, <laughs> it was. Um, it, it was really, it was really a surreal experience. Considering she wasn't actually standing there, she was listening to me on the radio. So a, a few, a few thousand people heard me. Um, right, more than that, me. it's a well listened to station. Well, whatever. Um, it was, it was just uh, no. It was, it was great. Everyone, everyone was just ridiculously supportive, and we're just like, wow, you're like. Really, really growing up and turning into a different person in the, a matter of a few days. It's, like, <laughs> it's. Uh, I've I've always been one to throw myself headfirst into things and um, sort of throw myself into the hot seat to learn what learn what I must do next. And you know, um, I just want to say thanks to everybody who who's wished me well and um, and I really really appreciate people actually caring about what's happening in my life because I like to care about what's going on in other people's lives as well. That's good. Well, well, well said. All right. So um, anyway, you can visit our. On that note, <laughs> you can visit our show website. That's behindtheparanormal.com, where you can find nearly 600 free podcasts of past shows uh, from both ON1240 and the Eno's four and a half year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. And you can certainly find my books at the usual suspects, Amazon.com, which is now the neighborhood bookstore, I guess. Amazon, Kindle, Barnes & Noble, Nook. But if you buy them directly at BehindTheParanormal.com, you'll help us keep all those podcasts free, and I'll be happy to sign the books for you. Also on our website, you'll find direct links to the, some of the charities Ben and I mentioned, and uh, check those out as well. And uh, next Monday, December 22nd, here on ON1240, 
and onworldwide.com. Uh, it will be a rather special show for us our, and our local listeners in Northern Rhode Island. We will welcome Woonsocket native and favorite son, the well-known psychic medium, Roland Comtois, uh, for a uh, rare appearance on the show by a psychic medium. That's the first one we've had in a very long time. And Roland will, will be with us in studio, which is always a treat. And uh, it should uh, I should stress that this discussion will be with Roland, and uh, we will not do uh, readings on the air. Okay, we leave you this evening with a quotable quote from our good friend Albert Einstein. There are two ways to live. You can live as if nothing is a miracle, or you can live as if everything is a miracle. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.